What I uh, want to do to start is have uh, you discuss a little bit with the neighbor next to you a couple quotes that I'm going to show you. So what I want you to kind of dialogue on are two things primarily. Are the two quotes, are they saying the same thing? Are they opposed to each other? What, what similarities are there in the quotes? And then what is the main point that these two people I'm quoting are trying to make? Okay, so you'll discuss that with a partner here in just one second. Here's the quote, sometimes when I consider what tremendous consequences come from little things, I'm tempted to think there are no little things. It has long been an axiom of mine that the little things are infinitely the most important. So talk to a neighbor, what are the, what's the point, do these guys agree with each other, disagree with each other, and uh, what is the main idea behind these quotes, right? Talk to a neighbor, I'll give you about a minute to do so. All right. Uh, talk to me. Do these guys agree, disagree, and what are their? Uh, what's the point? What are the point of these quotes? Thoughts. So little, maybe, as in uh, seemingly insignificant, or and yet that little thing had tremendous impact or effect. So it's not about importance. What else? Any other thoughts? Difference between what adults remember from their childhood versus what parents remember from their childhood. Yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts? We're not giving anything beyond what we can handle. Even if things are light, they can have amazing impact. I mean, if you start thinking about, especially that little things are infinitely the most important things. I think a lot of times in our culture, we don't see it that way. We see the big things, the glamorous things, the profound things as having the most importance. But in reality, there are so many things in life where it's the littlest moment the smallest detail, the most insignificant factor that seems to have the major change, that carries the most weight, that has the most significance. Let me give you a a couple examples. Uh, Mosquitoes. When mosquitoes are around you, it might be the littlest thing, but you know they're there. One, they have this annoying buzz. Two, they, they leave a welt or an impression. And so we might not think of mosquitoes very often. Certainly they're not as dangerous as they are around the rest of the world. But if you think about a little mosquito with just a little, little, teeny, teeny parasite in it that then creates malaria in someone. And over one million people every year die of malaria, which is about one death every 30 seconds. See, the little things matter. Little things matter. Little things even affect history. You've probably heard before of these little moments in time that tend to just change the scope of history. I'll give you a couple of examples. One, uh, maybe you've not heard of uh, Napoleon's hemorrhoids. Anyone? Yes, Napoleon. I wasn't going to show you the picture of the hemorrhoids, but this is Napoleon. Napoleon, uh, the interesting thing about him is emperor, but he was suffering during a part, a stage of his military presence. He was suffering from an acute bout of hemorrhoids. I know it's really exciting news and information, but what ended up happening is he wasn't able to really supervise his troops at the Battle of Waterloo, which was kind of the end of his military reign. What happened was two days before this major battle, they, uh, doctors, this is kind of gross, they actually lost the leeches they were using for treatment. 
and because they didn't have him any longer, they gave him this um, this medicine. Is it like a sedative? And ended up being like they overdosed him, so much so that on the day of the battle, like he couldn't ride first of all because of the pain, because it didn't really fix that, and two, he couldn't ride because he's kind of like loopy, and so all of that. The rest, they say, is history led to the demise, right? These little moments, these little things, these little what you seem to be pretty insignificant and yet can have a major impact. The story is told of a, a guy named Johann. I'll show you a picture. Johann was a priest. This priest uh, was hanging out near a group of uh, children. They were playing. All these children were running around. It was like the middle of winter. They're all playing tag. There's about ten of them. They're just darting in and out. They're hiding. They're trying to catch one another. They were playing along a river, and this little boy, four years old, falls into the river. It's ice cold, middle of winter, doesn't know how to swim, starts floating down the river. Then Johan goes and runs, jumps in, rescues the little boy, starts getting them all warm, heated up so he didn't have hypothermia. Saves the day. That little boy's first name was Adolf. Adolf Hitler, two years later, at the age of six, was taken by his mom to the doctor. The doctor recommended that he be placed into a mental institute for children. In fact, he suggested a specific institute run by a doctor you may have heard of, Sigmund Freud. The mother decided against and said, no, we'd like to keep him at home. Ten years later, age of 16, young Adolf had great aspirations, things he wanted to accomplish. His dream was to be an artist. If he couldn't be an artist, then he would be an architect. And so he gathered all of his drawings, his paintings, and he went to the art institute and applied and was rejected. He applied again and was rejected. So he decided, architectural school it must be. He applied, and was rejected. The rest, they say, is history. It's the little moments, the little decisions, the little things that impact and alter the course of history. That's why the one quote says, the little things are infinitely the most important. The reason I bring those stories up is simply this. I think we today are looking at a story of equal importance. Greater importance, in fact. The story of Stephen where you begin to see the life of this one individual had dramatic impact on the course of history. And what I want to do is look at this text. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 6, 7, and the first part of chapter 8. We're looking specifically at verses 8 of uh, chapter 6 through verse 3 of chapter 8. While you're turning there, last week Kevin did a uh, a time where he kind of walked through the story and reminded us of what the story was all about. I thought we would try to do the same thing today, but I would have you help me tell the story. I would have you help me give some of the details to it. And uh, I figured we could contemporize it a little bit. Make it a little more to today. And so, I'll show you the first little section of the verse. So we have Stephen says, A man full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. So here's where I need your help. 
I figured we could uh, help Luke kind of re-envision this passage a little bit, and uh, we could hashtag it up, okay? So, so like, you could be like, hashtag super Christian, hashtag the spirit of God inside of us, hashtag what do angels look like, right? So now, you tell me, you tell me, what are some other, like, hashtags you would add to this, to this? Hashtag what? Come on, give them to me. Yeah, hashtag signs and wonders, great. What else? Hashtag miracles. Hashtag awesome, right? Okay, good, we'll move to the next little section. Next little section says this, And the high priest said, Are these things so? He's questioning Stephen, and Stephen starts, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Hashtag long-winded. Hashtag Israel's history. What else? Talk to me. Hashtag know it all. Nice. What else? <laughs> Very good. Any others? Hashtag boring. Hashtag in your face. Good. Good. Next, we'll move on a little further in the story. You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Hashtag zealot. Hashtag giving them the business. Okay. <laughs> What else uh, would you add to that? Hashtag burn. Hashtag burn. <laughs> what, uh, any others? Hashtag hypocrite. We see this story where, where Stephen is walking through the midst of a really challenging, difficult time. He's in front of the Sanhedrin. He starts to give him the business at the end, and then here's this next section that I want us to focus in on this morning. It says this, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Him. Then they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, it says. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now this section for me this week and the last couple of weeks has just really been captivating. I've been thinking a lot on what is it that this part of the text is really communicating to us and what are the things that we can see that uh, really are a part of this movement. The little things and the little um, changes in the text, the subtleties of it that really speak to the idea that little things can make a big difference or little people or people can have dramatic impact on others. 
And my hope this morning, just to kind of let you know where, uh, what I'm hoping for, is I hope that the time we spend over the next few moments will start conversations, will allow group discussion to happen, will mean that you sit down with a friend over coffee and you ask some questions about their life and about your life and about little moments and people and, and begin to reflect on these things. So that's kind of my hope over the next few minutes because I think that this passage is filled with tiny details that have dramatic impact and it's filled with people that change the course of history. You've probably heard of uh, the butterfly effect or the domino effect, right? So the domino effect, the idea behind that is that a single act can have dramatic ramifications on the world, right? That some small thing that happens creates this ripple that ends up changing maybe the course of history or changing someone's life or completely impacting some circumstance on the opposite side of the globe, that these ripples, this butterfly effect, this whole effect of dominoes tipping one another has dramatic impact. Stephen's act was like that. I want to highlight a couple ways that that was the case. The first is this, that little moments can alter history. I'm convinced that little moments can alter history. We talked about a few of those before. But in this passage specifically, what's interesting, at least to me, is that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is on the scene. It's the last time He gives a declaration before He leaves. And in Acts 1, verse 8, He says that you are going to be witnesses. Witnesses of my life, witnesses of my death, of my resurrection. He's echoing the same words He told them in Matthew chapter 28. Saying, go into all the world and make disciples. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. And when He tells them to go, and when He tells them to be witnesses, He tells them to do it in Jerusalem first, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts. The goal is that what starts in Jerusalem, what you've seen and witnessed, would ripple throughout the world. There would be dramatic change that the story would spread. That's Jesus' teaching. That's His commission to the people. That's what He's called them to. What's interesting though, is that when we get to this part of the story in the book of Acts, the Gospel has not moved beyond Jerusalem. It's still there. Let me give you two examples. You have a passage in chapter 5. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and wounded. Where are they bringing them? Back to Jerusalem. Everything is centered in Jerusalem. All the healing is happening there. All the teaching is happening there. Everything that this movement has started, the community being together and sharing things, everything is happening in Jerusalem. You go a little further and it says this, when uh, the apostles were before the council, the high priest said to them, we strictly charged you not to teach in this, in this name, the name of Jesus, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So even those that don't believe in Jesus are saying that the whole of Jerusalem is filled with teaching. It went from 120 people in a room, in the upper room, to now some estimates are like 25,000 people who have trusted Christ in just a short period of time. And so he's saying, you've filled Jerusalem. The problem is, they haven't lived into 
what God has called them to. It stayed in Jerusalem. And then you come to Stephen. You come to this little moment in time. And here's what the text says. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. See, Stephen's act. Stephen submitting his life, declaring the truth of the Gospel, and giving his life as the first martyr is the reason the Gospel began to move outside of Jerusalem. That persecution and the stoning of Stephen tipped the domino that began to ripple the Gospel through the world. That one man's life, one man's decisions change the course of history. One can never underestimate the power of a moment. A moment in time that alters, that changes everything. So the question becomes for us, are we living into those moments? The decisions we're making. Do we recognize that the decision to do something when we haven't been doing it could be life-altering. Or the decision to not do the very thing we so badly want to do at times is the decision that changes our lives. Moments can alter history, but little moments can also be moving. What I mean by that is this, that there are times in life when we witness something that absolutely moves our heart or our soul. I don't know if you've seen those times where you, you witness someone do something for someone else and you're moved to want to go do something to help someone. Or you see a dad who comes home from military service and surprises his family. You see those moments? They show them on TV or video and like I, I start crying because I'm going, man, like there's so much love and there's so much that they're missing about their father or their mother. You see those moments that move you. What's interesting about this moment is the same thing, I think, happens here. Now consider this. In the New Testament, both the writers and just theologians in general have always been really focused on the idea of Jesus' posture after the cross. So the Scriptures say over and over again that when Jesus, after He died after He gave His life, that all of His work was done, right? So the text says again and again that He's seated at the right hand of God. That He's sitting down. Why seated? Because it indicates, I'm done. I finished it. There's nothing else to do. Nobody else has to raise a finger. It's completed. I sit down and now I rule and reign with God over everything. So you'll see it in passages like Luke chapter 22. It says, but from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In Acts 2, you see that He's exalted at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1, after making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then Hebrews 8, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. You see it again and again and again in Scripture. That Jesus is seated. Everything's completed. It's finished. Then you come to this moment in time. 
And the passage says this. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Think about that for a moment. Standing. You might ask why. Here's my hypothesis. I'm convinced that Jesus was so moved by that moment, so moved by the expression of faith, so moved by the testimony of his son, his child, that he moved from a seated posture to a standing, to looking, to moving close, to being present, to seeing that moment. I mean, that's mind blowing. That the very actions of us, the way we live, the things we do, could actually move God. They would get Him to change His posture, even. To move from a place of, hey, to, man, look at that moment. Look at that circumstance. Look at that person. That the very thing that I've called them to, the very thing that I've hoped for is becoming reality. They're following me. They're living for me. That, that our very actions can have the same type of effect. So the question becomes, are we living that way? Are we taking advantage of the little moments that seem so insignificant and yet have profound implications? Because the little things are infinitely the most important. So we talked about moments, but I think this passage is also filled with people. I want to take the next little bit to talk about people. I also want us to go back to the idea of dominoes. So dominoes, the effect, begins to happen. But here's the truth. If I was to put up right now, go back to the first one, if I was to put this one up, and we were to like line up five or six dominoes right now, and I was to tip it over, and you were to watch it, and I'd go, there you go, look at that. You'd go, that sucked. Like, who cares? Five dominoes. Awesome. That's not interesting at all. It's quite boring, in fact. But here's why we get excited about dominoes. Because it is the compound, growing movement of one domino after another, after another, after another, after another, until you're like at 50,000 dominoes. It's that cumulative, growing dynamic that makes us engaged. I went online to like, look for these pictures of dominoes next 20 minutes watching domino videos, right? <laughs> like, this is amazing. Oh my goodness. They're like, one after another. It was incredible. The things that people design and they tip over and knock into this other thing and it's just over and over. You'll do it later, trust me. And it, incredible. Why are we captivated by that? Because we see the growth, the movement, the change, the fact that one thing starts something that keeps moving and moving and moving. Scientists have done studies on dominoes. One domino, small one, can tip over the next domino and can tip over a domino one and a half times the size of the original domino. Okay? And then that will tip one over that's one and a half times size of that. Really? Pretty cool. Not too big a deal, you would think. But I was right here to tip a domino and it hit one, one and a half times size bigger. 
when we got over here to the 29th domino. The 29th domino that would be tipped over would be the size of the Empire State Building. Because it builds. The strength of the movement grows. Everything keeps building and building and building until the Empire State Building tips. Because it's growing. It's moving. It's dynamic. <clears throat> it reminds me of a story of a guy named Edward Kimball. How many of you have heard of Edward Kimball? The two guys in the last service heard of him. No one else. Thank you guys for raising your hands. And uh, <clears throat> Edward Kimball lived a long time ago, 1854. He taught a Sunday school class. Sunday school class that he taught, he wasn't very good at it. He did it every Sunday, but not a lot of kids came. It was primarily to like uh, early high school age students. And uh, many people say that they were kind of forced to go to Sunday school. But he loved the guys. It was this guy's Sunday school class that he taught, and he loved them so much. And what he wanted to do was see each one of them come to know Jesus. And so one day, he went to a shoe store where a guy was working. This guy was 16 years old. He was in his little Sunday school class. And he went to the back room as he was stocking shoes. And it was time for his break. And he sat this guy down, and he said, let me share Jesus with you. And told him about how Jesus had changed Edward's life. And how he needed to also understand the implications of who Jesus was. That little 16-year-old, at that moment, in that shoe store, trusted Christ. His name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody went on to share the gospel with over 100,000 people. He even spoke here in Spokane. He helped raise money for the YMCA. That D.L. Moody that spoke all over the world, at one point worked in the life of a guy named J. Wilbur Chapman. J. Wilbur Chapman began to work with Moody. He began to spend time with him. He helped him on his crusades. While he was coming near the end of that time, he hired a guy named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a baseball player. Played professional baseball. At the end of his career, he became an evangelist. He spoke all over. One of his times he was leading the survival a guy named Mordecai Ham came to know Jesus. Mordecai Ham felt a call to be an evangelist as well. He began to share the gospel. And in the 30s, 1930s, he was leading a revival in Charlotte. There was this big tent that was outside. And on the one, this one particular day, he's sharing the gospel. And there were these two boys that were outside playing around. One of them tapped his buddy on and said, we should go in and see what this goof is talking about. And so they walked to the fringe. They kind of poked their head into the tent. And one of the ushers sees him, grabs him, takes him, sits him down up front. Now they're like, crap, we can't get out of this. <laughs> so they're sitting there. They don't want to be there. They don't know why they're there. They're sitting there, and there's a little boy, 16 years old, trusted Christ. His name was Billy Graham. Edward Kimball begins this domino effect that comes to see Billy Graham come to know Jesus. And then if you start to think about how that implica- the implications of that on our own lives. I mean, there, my grandfather grew up in a time where Billy Graham was all over. He would listen to it on the radio. He became a minister. He led my father, and I believe my mother, to Christ, who in turn led me to Christ. 
that you continue to see ripple effects. That all this comes from a guy named Edward Kimball who basically said, I'm going to share the gospel with someone. Little small domino that began to tip all these dominoes. And we could probably all trace in unique ways a connection to this man. But the question for me becomes, who led Edward Kimball to Jesus? Probably someone who will never be known. Because it's the insignificant moments. It's the people that go unrecognized that often change everything. So you have a guy named Stephen who's waiting on tables and helping widows who shares his story in front of a group of people and is stoned. And the text says this, the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul approved of his execution. And that when devout men were burying Stephen, Saul was ravaging the church. You have this moment in time where Stephen gives his very life, and then what happens is you see Saul ramp up the efforts to destroy this movement. Instead, the movement changes him, and he becomes Paul, and then Paul writes a majority of the New Testament and starts churches, and then churches begin to grow and flourish, and then he appoints elders, and they appoint elders, and then we have new community. Why? Because of the ripple effect started by Stephen. That his life influenced the lives of others. Frederick Bruckner said this, the life I touch for good or ill will touch another life, and that in turn another, until who knows where the trembling stops or in what place, far place my touch will be felt. So your life matters. The influence that you have and that you use and the way you live and move and have your being, as it says in Acts, changes people and changes events. So the question I've been wrestling with this week, and I want to conclude with this part, is this. What are the qualities that were present in Stephen that positioned him to be so influential? Because sometimes we think of it just as a moment, or sometimes we think of it just as a person, and we go, oh, that person did something fabulous or fantastic. But the question becomes, what was true of that person that enabled them in the moment in time to respond the way they did? And we could probably list a ton of characteristics of Stephen from this text. The passage goes on to say he was full of the Holy Spirit, that he had great wisdom, even had the face of an angel, that he had courage, that he was humble. I mean, there's all these qualities or characteristics of this man that could influence and shape who we are. But I wanted to highlight two this morning that stood out to me. The first one is that Stephen was surrendered. Surrendered. By, by surrendered, what I mean is that he was all in, fully committed. He was the kind of guy that, that left everything on the table. And I started asking myself, am I that same kind of person? Am I so surrendered that I say that it's all God's? Or do I say that it's kind of like mostly God's? 
Or, God, it's all yours when it's really convenient. Or, God, I give you like everything minus a few of these things that are really important to me. Even as I was writing this, the song came into my mind that I sang when I was young. It was, all to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. Maybe you've heard this. Then there's the chorus. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And I remember when I was young, I would just sing that because everyone was singing it. And then it dawned on me one day, like, do I really mean that? Do I really mean that I surrender all? Could I say that even today? That I surrender everything. So I rewrote the chorus. This is a little bit more of how I would like to say it. I surrender occasionally. I surrender 10%. Some to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender when convenient. I think this is probably the climate of the church at large. But if it's true of the church at large, I have to ask the question, is it true of me? Or do I really surrender all? Am I really willing to say that I commit fully? Because I treat it more like when I go to the pool with my kids, they all jump in and then I'm like, I dip my toe in and back out. And I dip my feet in and I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to commit. It is ice cold. Heat this thing up, right? That's, that's how I feel so many times. The Spartans were warriors. You've heard of the Spartans. They would go and conquer all kinds of people and nations. And it was often said that what they would do is they would arrive with boats. They would come to the land. They would all file off. They'd have their weaponry with them, their shields, everything they needed. They would stand on the shore. They'd look at their opponent. they know what they have to do but then they would utter one command. And the command was, burn the ships. That was the first command. Burn the ships. Why? There's no surrender. There's no going back. There's no like, hey, I'm scared. I'm going to jump on the boat and sail away. It was, we're going this way, or that's it. No backing out. Is that us? Is that who we are? Because I think Stephen was a guy that was all in. He was surrendered. He was also a guy that was story formed. Story formed. And here's what I mean by story formed. The, the story of the Gospel, the story of the life of Jesus, shaped everything about Stephen. He was moved by it. It changed him. It became a part of who he was. It became his story. He didn't have... Stephen's story and then Jesus' story, he had one story. And he knew this story. He became so involved with the story, so interested in the story, that it became a story that he knew. Not just so much so that he could kind of talk about it. He knew it so much that when the moment in time came that he felt the most pressure, he had all these witnesses, people accusing him falsely. In that moment... He said, well, let me give you the story. 
So could we do that? If we were pinned with our back up against the wall and someone said, why do you do what you do? Who are you? Why do you live this way? Would the Gospel come out? Or would you be stuttering for words? Do you know the story so much that it just oozes out? Because he knew the story. Not only did he know the story, he made sure that he was about God's story. So another question we might ask one another this week, or even in small groups, is to ask the question, who's your story about? Because I think a lot of times what we do is we try to figure out how to make our story about us. I want my story to work out right. I want to reach my goal. I want to get what I deserve because I am tempted to make the story, the story about me. The story is only about one person. And my part is a part of the grand story. And I think Stephen got that. He got that his life became intertwined with the story. Eugene Peterson said it this way, Stories in contrast to abstract statements of truth tease us into becoming participants in what is being said. We find ourselves involved in the action. We may start as spectators or critics, but if the story is good, we find ourselves no longer just listening, but inhabiting the story. So my question is, Is the story being lived by you? Is it being lived by me? Are we becoming participants in it? Or are we just observers and critics? I think Stephen captured a moment in time because he was the type of person that could capture that moment. Little things make all the difference. Let's pray.